Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life, Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be back with you another Wednesday evening, where we have the opportunity to continue our reflections into this very rich and beautiful topic of theology of the body. We have been in Christopher West's work, Fill These Hearts. And my dear friends, it's not only good to be back in this radio station for this subject matter, but just to be back on the radio station itself. I've been away for over a week and a half, and I have been itching to get back in the studio to talk about so many different things, to the least of which, certainly, is theology of the body. Why? Well, I think you know why, because this past Friday, the Supreme Court came down with its decision to make gay marriage a law of the land. And I know because of that, these are the days we are asking a lot of new questions about not only how to better understand that relationship between man and woman, but also how to respond to those who don't understand. And so this is why theology of the body is so important. Yes, yes, it is easy to just do our homework to find a nice soundbite answer to people's questions out there. And certainly within the context of apologetics, it is necessary. But just as shortcuts are necessary to get from point A to point B, we all long for the scenic route because the scenic route is where we capture the beauty from point A to point B. And let me tell you something, my dear friends, theology of the body in all of its beauty, in all of its truth, and in all of its goodness, is that panoramic view, is that scenic route. And so while we want that soundbite answer, my dear friends, what we have been doing over the past year in treating theology of the body is establishing those necessary principles that we might be able to better not only understand the relationship between man and woman, but ultimately be able to respond and at the same time educate those around us on the beauty of the language of the body. So with that, while we are asking those important questions because of the many conversations that we find ourselves in, let us engage Christopher West's work, Fill These Hearts. And in doing so, be mindful about how we might be able to better hand this on, how we might be able to better own this subject matter, that we might go deeper into our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, into this bridal relationship we are called to have with Jesus Christ, and also at the same time to hand on what this relationship looks like. Okay, with that, fill these hearts. I want to give a nod to Derek Allen and Christopher Seibert while I was gone. They did a wonderful job with chapter three of Fill These Hearts. I really thought that they uh, owned the uh, subject matter and really gave us some nice images to reflect with so as to better understand what that chapter was all about, which was what but the fast food gospel. Let us pull back and now remember what Christopher West is doing. 
He's presenting theology of the body and how the culture thinks about the body within the context of uh, three different ideas. The first being what he called the starvation diet gospel. What is the starvation diet gospel? Well, the starvation diet gospel is when we neglect the good that is eros. Now, I know for many of us out there, we hear that word, and as we've noted in the past, it's typically caught up in what I would dare say uh, pornographic. But what we've established, if anything here, is that eros is so much more than that. That is a very finite understanding of eros. Certainly, it belongs to the erotic, but how do we think about the erotic? But the physical human love that ultimately points to something bigger, something greater, something infinite, which is what? But agape, that love which Christ teaches us on the cross. So the starvation diet gospel is what Christopher West presents to us in chapter 2 to highlight that we are missing out on the beauty of truth if we neglect our sexuality. Now, after treating what happens to us when we neglect the beauty of our sexuality, in chapter 3, he gets into what he calls the fast food gospel, which is essentially what? Well, if you hear the title, you can well imagine that it's ultimately about this self-indulgence. It's about indulging ourselves in sex. And in both of these chapters, Christopher West does a beautiful job of pulling from contemporary images and contemporary icons to engage us so as to better understand what happens to us if we neglect our sexuality as a whole, or if we fall into the camp of indulging ourselves. I mean, let's face it, (laughs) there's something in us that can be very attracted to the promise of happiness through non-committed, pregnancy-free sexual indulgence, and that's what we slip into. But my dear friends, you and I both know that is a false promise, because in the end, as Christopher West notes, the fast food gospel isn't a gospel at all. Like his previous chapter in chapter 2, the starvation diet gospel, it leads to death, not by malnutrition, but by poisoning our system with unhealthy food. So in chapter 4, he turns to the banquet, which is a chapter that ultimately takes up a healthy understanding of our sexuality. And so in this chapter, he opens up with Isaiah 25.6. What does Isaiah have to say to us here? Well, listen closely. The Lord will prepare a lavish banquet for all, a feast of rich food and pure choice wines, juicy rich food and pure choice wines. I think we love this image. Why? Because many of us love to eat. I mean, I don't know about you, but have you ever pondered how amazing our taste buds are. These tiny sensory organs that bring such delight to us. I noted I was away. I I was away in Ohio visiting my wife's family. And let me tell you something. When I go to Ohio, it's kind of a running joke. I always gain at least five pounds because they make amazing food. I find myself loving my mother-in-law's gooey chocolate chip cookies or uh, she makes this amazing pasta that I just find myself wanting more. And like for many of us, if we're going to be honest with each other, when we're done feasting on a great meal, we don't like it. 
Why? Well, because simply it's over. I mean, all of us have to face the fact that this time of pleasure that we all enjoy when eating our favorite foods, what? Comes to an end. And I, like many of us, are very sad about that. I mean, we all have our favorite places to go and we all have our favorite foods to eat. And for that reason, we are sad when our meal is gone. Why are we sad? Because we all want a feast that lasts forever. But the question that Christopher West poses that is so necessary for all of us to ask is simply, does that exist? Is there such a thing? And if there is, it's certainly beyond anything this life has to offer. And that means while we are here in this life, we have to figure out what to do with this painful ache inside of us, this longing, this desire, this yearning. And it is always right in that moment of sadness at the end of the meal that we seemingly have, as Christopher West highlights, three options. And I love this. The first is we can repress our desire in hopes of alleviating the sadness. The second, we can gluttonously indulge our desire in more food than my body needs. Or, lastly, we can let the deliciousness, if you will, of the meal and the sadness that it's over to do its job, to awaken the hope within us, to whet our appetite for the life to which we are destined, the life beyond this life, where ultimately the banquet never ends. And the option, my dear friends, that we choose in that moment, we can say indicates whether or not we are learning to direct our desire according to God's design so that it launches us to our destiny. In short, as Christopher West notes, the option we choose in that moment determines whether we are on the path of stoicism, addiction, or mysticism. What do we mean by stoicism or the stoic? Well, Christopher West, I think, does a good job of defining the stoic here. He says, the stoic tries to avoid the pain of desiring more than this life has to offer by choosing not to want so much by shutting desire down. Okay, so as a stoic, uh, I am afraid of the thirst in my soul to the point of not wanting to feel it and certainly not wanting to open it up. The Stoic thinks that life's easier that way, and I can feign a certain peace. Nothing really troubles me, and nothing really excites me at the same time. But this is the unmoved peace of a corpse at the morgue. It's lifeless, vapid. It exchanges red-hot lifeblood for blue-cold embalming fluid. Stoics are usually very well-meaning and are rightly concerned about how desires can be impure and misdirected, but rather than working to redirect desire towards its proper end, they shut desire down in favor of a dutiful life. There is a certain rigidity to the Stoic. How about the addict? Well, here Christopher West defines the addict as one who tries to avoid the pain of wanting more than this life has to offer by gorging 
on the things this life does have to offer, trying to suck infinity out of finite things. And that's a great definition. But my dear friends, as we know, <laughs> finite things can never satisfy our yearning for what but the infinite. Once I've attained what I thought I wanted, but I'm still left wanting, what do I think I need? Well, the addict says more. Then when I attain more and it still doesn't satisfy me, what do I think? Well, the addict says more and more and more and more. This is why, as Christopher West talked about in chapter 3, the fast food gospel leads not to satisfaction happiness, but to addiction and despair. And yet, although the addict may be on a fast track to self-destruction, at the very least, <laughs> we can say he is also in touch with his desire. As such, we can say he holds something in common with the third category that Christopher West offers up, the mystic. You see, the mystic, my friends, is the one who allows himself to feel the deepest depths of human desire and chooses to stay in the pain, if you will, of wanting more than this life has to offer. The mystic, my dear friends, having walked through many purifying trials, which, of course, the mystical tradition calls the dark night of the soul, he is able to both do without the many pleasures of this world and to rejoice in all the true pleasures of this world without idolizing them. That is to say, without trying to suck infinity out of them. As the Apostle Paul says, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of living in abundance and of being in need. For the mystic, my dear friends, the true pleasures of the world are a welcome, but at the same time, only a dim foreshadowing of the ecstasy that awaits him in the life to come. You see, the mystic lives in that tension, if you will, of appreciating the finite while at the same time having a mind and heart, certainly, for the infinite. He can live within that ache, right? And if you're to go into mystical tradition, when you see that word ache, it's typically defined also as uh, the wound of love. Huh? So the mystic can live within that ache because of his living hope that his soul shall be satisfied as with a banquet. And that's the great psalm that comes to us in chapter 63, verse 5. Beautiful. A banquet that lasts forever and will fulfill the mystic's every desire beyond all earthly imaginings. The truth is, my dear friends, we are all called to be mystics in this sense. And that means we are all called to enter into the great mystery of Christ and his mad love affair with us. If you were to go into salvation history, what you find is that God has a love affair with humanity. Our desire for God must match God's desire to love us. We have to open our hearts. You know, we often think of the Christian mystics as those saints who experience phenomena like bodily levitations or the bleeding wounds of Christ and the stigmata. And certainly, that exists, and that is extraordinary mysticism. And 
a few are called to that. But there is also something called ordinary mysticism. And this is what we speak to when we encounter the mystery of Christ in and through the normal day-to-day circumstances in life. This isn't something we have to go searching for among the clouds. But as John Paul II reminds us in Theology of the Body, God comes to us in the things we know best and can verify most easily, the things of our everyday life, apart from which we cannot understand ourselves. What John Paul wants us to see is that God comes to us, my dear friends, in the concreteness and particularities of our everyday life. So, a mystic is someone who is able to taste and see the goodness of the Lord, to taste and see the goodness of the Lord in all of our life's circumstances and events, and in all of his creation, even in the midst of trials and sufferings. A mystic is someone who has been captivated by the fragrance and beauty of God's divine love. And nothing, nothing can thwart his or her desire for ever deeper intimacy with the divine lover. I opened up with noting that these are the days where we find ourselves in many discussions about the events that took place this past week, in particular, the Supreme Court's decision to vote in favor of making lawful gay marriage. Well, let this not divert us from the path of truth, from the path that is before us to seek God ever more deeply. In fact, let it convict us. God calls us all to be in intimate union with Him. In fact, the Catechism, my dear friends, makes it clear that God desires to be in intimate union with each and every one of us. Even if the special graces or extraordinary signs of the mystical life are only granted to a few for the sake of manifesting the gratuitous gift given to all. In short, a mystic is someone who has entered God's love song, hears it everywhere, and can't help but dance because of it. No, we speak of God's love song here. What are we talking about here? What is God's love song? Well, it it certainly, as Christopher West notes, would have to be the greatest song imaginable, the song of all songs. It is. It's the song of songs, the Bible's greatest ode to Eros. It is the most fascinating thing, my dear friends, that saints have written more commentaries on this unabashedly erotic poetry than on any other book in the Bible, more than on the Gospels, more than on all of St. Paul's letters. Why? What do the saints know that the rest of us need to get in on? If the Gospels are the heart of all the scriptures, as St. Tres of Lisieux reminds us, the mystics point us to the Song of Songs as the essence of biblical faith. This is where, in a very particular way, the divine nectar, as Christopher West makes note, can be accessed and savored. This is where we gain entrance to the divine wedding feast, to the banquet hall of love, as the Song of Songs says in chapter 2, verse 4. This is where, my friends, we can surrender to the ecstasy and bliss for which we yearn for. Amen. What more could be said? Well, If we believe that that lifeless legalism 
of the Jansenistic perspective. To be the authentically Christian one, we might expect the first chapter of the Catechism of the Catholic Church to begin with a statement about what wretched sinners we are and how angry God is with us. Instead, we find something else. If you were to go to uh, section 1, chapter 1 of the Catechism, it begins with a statement on what? But human desire, not that lifeless legalism, not that vanilla sense of what our sexuality is all about, no, but desire. This is what the Catechism says, paragraph 27. The desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. The dignity of man rests above all on the fact that he is called to communion with God. In other words, my friends, the ache we feel in our bones is a yearning for who? God. In fact, when Christians say the word God, what do we actually mean? It's the word we use, as St. Augustine highlights, to describe what? What we all yearn for. What does the psalmist cry in chapter 63, verse 1? Oh God, you are my God. For you I long, for you my soul is thirsting. My body pines for you, like a dry, weary land without water. And make note, my dear friends, the first beatitude on this point. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The Greek word for spirit is panuma, where we get the word lung. Blessed are those who long for God the same way our lungs long for air. Amen. The Catechism goes on to discuss various ways this yearning has uh, found expression throughout history, including how our desire for God can get off track. It mentions, among other things, bad examples of some believers within the context of this starvation diet gospel, and the lure of the riches of the world well, within the context of the fast food gospel, which can, in the end, ultimately cause us to forget, overlook, or simply explicitly reject our call to be what? In union with God. It is right that that opening section, the Catechism, ends with St. Augustine's famous words to God, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. John Paul II once said that in this creative restlessness beats and pulsates what is most deeply human. You know, this restless yearning is what makes us religious beings. Here, Christopher West quotes a man by the name of Lorenzo Abacete, who says this, Religion is either the reasonable quest for the satisfaction of all the original desires of the heart, or religion is a dangerous, divisive, harmful waste of time. You and I both know, my dear friends, that it is the former. You see, because religion, at its core is about being in union with God. The word religion in the Latin, religare, literally means to belong to God. Oh, be rest assured, my friends, we belong to God when we are in intimate union with God. These words from Lorenzo Abacete are strong words 
to reflect upon. I mean, how seriously do we take our quest for the satisfaction of the deepest desires of our hearts? Are we even in touch with these desires? Have we mistaken the superficial satisfaction of physical pleasure, again, that fast food approach, with the much deeper satisfaction of the soul we crave? Have we reduced religion to a dutiful following of the rules? That is to say, the starvation diet approach. Where are we at? In short, my friends, if a Christian is not passionately pursuing the satisfaction of his deepest yearnings, then he's not really following Christ. He may be following an ethical code, and he may be a good and kind person, but his lamp simply isn't lit. His fire isn't burning. Why does John Paul II, when talking about the new evangelization, say evangelization is new in its art, methods, and expression? Those three principles the last two that are hinged to the first. What is the first? Ardor. The ardere in the Latin. Fire to be ablaze, to be passionately in love with God. This is the first principle of evangelization because this is the natural outgrowth of being in union with God. Remember that in the events of the upper room, when the Holy Spirit descended upon them, it descended upon them in the form of what? Fire. Fire helps us better understand what the love of God is all about. So when we are in love with God, when we are passionately in love with God, the natural outgrowth to that love is fire. To be enthusiastic about a relationship with Jesus Christ, huh? Remember the word enthusiasm comes from the Greek entheos, to bear God within. You see, when we are in this deep, deep intimacy with God, we are going to know that we are set ablaze. We are enthusiastic solely on those things that belong to God. Everything else is a distraction. When we are in love with God, we have this laser-like focus on what belongs to God. And everything else falls to the margins. Everything else falls to the side. We can see it, identify it, use it as a way to bring people to God but all the while never losing sight of who is before you, Jesus Christ. So when we speak of Christianity in particular, we must recall it is the religion that proclaims, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be satisfied. Indeed, my dear friends, at the source and summit of our Christian faith, we find heavenly bread and divine wine given precisely to satisfy and even to what intoxicate us, intoxicate us with the fire and love of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord says, whoever eats this bread and drinks this chalice will what? Live forever. He shall exclaim in communion with all the saints, the great communion antiphon that comes from the divine office. The Lord has prepared a feast for me, given wine in plenty for me to drink. Mm. I want to close with a great quote that comes to us from St. Teresa of Avila. She says this, The king seems to refuse nothing to the bride. Well then, let her drink as much as she desires and get drunk on all these wines in the cellar of God. 
Let her enjoy these joys, wonder at these great things, and not fear to lose her life through drinking much more than her weak nature enables her to do. Let her die at last in this paradise of delights. Blessed death that makes one live in such a way. Amen. Some provocative stuff from St. Teresa of Avila. Drinking from the font of life that allows us to go deeper into a bridal union with Christ. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.